Well, as we turn to the Word this morning, we're going to begin a series, which hopefully I want to make sure that uh, the presentation comes up this morning, if we can. Ah, there we go. Good, we're going to begin a series this morning called The Language of Grief. The Language of Grief, and we're this first part here this morning. Um, Over the last several months, Right, we've been working through the book of Job as a congregation. And in, I don't know about you, but it's been immensely helpful. Right? It's been immensely helpful as it deals with the issues of suffering and pain that we experience in this life. You know, more specifically, it deals with the issue of when we're experiencing this puzzling pain or, or pain that seems to have no explanation, pain that seems to have no reason. This is pain that seems unfair as if you've done nothing in particular to deserve this pain. Now God describes Job, which is where he's been, as a blameless man, one who genuinely loves God, and yet even though Job had done nothing to warrant the kind of suffering that he experienced, right, the loss of his wealth, loss of his children, his health, that's all topped off by his wife telling him to curse God and die. Even though he had done nothing to warrant experiencing that kind of suffering, he still finds himself in the middle of it. And Job looks at his circumstances, and he readily admits that he's not perfect, yet he knows he hasn't done anything to deserve this level of pain and suffering that God has allowed to come into his life. And you get a sense, even as you read through the book of Job, that he's struggling even to put words to this pain. He's experienced this kind of loss that we can't possibly imagine. This kind of loss that is really unfathomable. And and what do you say? He, He knows he's a sinner. He knows he isn't perfect. Yet, man, it just doesn't seem right. And in that moment, what what is he to say? Now, when I was nine years old, my dad was in the military, um, and we moved to Europe. We lived in Belgium for three years, moved over there when I was nine. And um, when we first moved there, when we first moved to the city, my, when my parents were trying to find a place to live, we didn't have a place to live yet. We, the military put us up in a hotel out in town. Now, one of the first afternoons, you can imagine, we were all jet lagged, so we were all up at weird times of the day and night. And we were bored, so we decided, or my parents, right, decided, hey, we're going to go venture out into town just to see what the town is like. We're just, we're just going to go for a walk around the block, right? Let's go for a walk around the block. Well, not long after we left, we realized that over in Europe, they don't have blocks like we do here, right? These are old cities, right? They have me- meandering roads that go through town. And as you can imagine, we got lost, right? And of course, right, guys, this is pre-GPS, there are no smartphones, right? We, we don't have a map with us. So here we are, Americans, new to the city, lost, wandering around, and without any ability to read or speak the local French language. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation or that kind of situation, but it can be very overwhelming. You, you know what you want to say or you know what you want to hear, but you can't. Like None of it helps. You feel completely lost and helpless. I think that's what it feels like when you're in the middle of intense suffering. It's like you find yourself in this city of suffering, and when you're looking at the signs, they're all written in some kind of foreign language. You can't read them. You, you don't know the language, and so you're wandering around feeling hopeless 
and helpless and scared. You wander around feeling like you're not really going anywhere at all, but you feel if you could just speak the language, if you just knew the words, that, that that could help. If I knew the language, maybe that could help get me from here to there, but, but you don't know what to say, and you feel like the words you can use don't mean anything at all. Right, these are those moments in life right, that are physically, emotionally, spiritually, they weigh on us. They're, these are deep waters, and, and I think it's helpfully expressed in, in a song by a band where they say, how many times have you heard me cry out, God, please take this? How many times have you given me strength to just keep breathing? Oh, I need you, God, I need you now. Now, my guess is that most everyone in this room can relate to a moment or a season in your life that was like this. You, you were hurting so bad that you felt numb. Right? For me, there was a season in my life that was so, much, so painful. I was depressed, couldn't sleep at night, struggled to get up in the morning to go to work. During the day at work, so overwhelmed with emotion, I would go find an empty, dark classroom somewhere just so I could sit and cry. I reached such a low point that at one time driving home just cried out to God to please take me from this world. I was in so much pain, I just wanted the pain to stop. And it seemed like there was no end in sight. I felt like I was wandering around this city of suffering, but I didn't know the language. I was lost and hopeless and scared and just so overwhelmed. And as we approach a time like this, or even as we think about these moments or seasons in our life, I think as a church, here, even universally, I think as a church, we do a good job of thinking about why. Why God allows or even brings this kind of suffering into our lives. We know that God brings suffering to produce character, endurance, and hope in the glory of God from Romans 5. We know that God uses suffering for our good and his glory, Romans 8. We know that what Satan means for evil, God turns for good in Genesis 50. We know that chastening from the Lord affirms us as our stat, in our status as children, Hebrews 12. We even know that God uses these seasons to grow us in holiness, also Hebrews 12. Now, all those statements are true. And these are statements, these are things, these are truths that we should rehearse in our own heart. However, in the middle of the pain, the question still remains, what do I do with that pain? What do I do with the hurt? What do I do with the deep emotion of it? Even though I know these things to be true about my pain, what do I do with it? And that is where I think the church as a whole often falls short. We do a good job with the theology of suffering, which is important and it's good, but not as good with dealing with the pain in the middle of the suffering. So in other words, when we're there, we don't know what to say. We don't know the language. Even when we go before God, we feel there is absolutely nothing inside of us that we can even bring to him. So how do we give voice to our pain? And that's really the goal of our time together over these next several weeks. <clears throat> As we want to give voice, the pain, we want to learn the language of grief. And what is amazing is that God has not left us on our own. He hasn't left us on our own to figure out this language. He's given us a biblical language to put to our pain. And he's given us clear examples in scripture of how we can biblically voice our pain. And the language that God has given to us to voice our pain is called lament. And to lament is uniquely Christian. Now let me say that again because 
my guess is you may or may not have heard that before, but I know that before God took me down certain roads in my life and confronted me with truth of the word, I would never have agreed with this statement, or actually I wouldn't have even understood it. But it's true, to lament is uniquely Christian. And my goal is that by the end of the study, everybody here will understand what it means to biblically lament and how, when done rightly, it actually orients our hearts toward God and allows us in our suffering to live in this pole between, between the poles of the pain of this life and the goodness of God. Lamenting brings hope in our pain because that hope is anchored in Christ alone. And lamenting gives voice to our pain. It puts a language to our grief. It gives us words to express when we are in the middle of this kind of pain. But first, but first, as, as we get into this, we need to answer some initial questions to help get us into this topic this morning. The first is, what does it mean to lament? When I say lament, what is a lament? Well, a lament is a passionate expression of grief. That's what it means to lament. It's a passionate, deep-seated, emotional expression of grief. And throughout Scripture, lament gives voice to the intense emotions that believers feel when we're in the middle of suffering. Lament is this sort of expression while we are experiencing the pain, which is why it is so helpful. That's the first question. What does it actually mean when I say that's what it means? That's a definition for us this morning to help us out for lament. Secondarily, what's some biblical support for lament? I mean, I'm saying that to lament is uniquely Christian, but where do we see this in Scripture? Well, the strongest support there is in the word for lamenting is the book of Psalms. It's the book of Psalms. If we look, just so we understand the scope of it, if we look at the entirety of the Psalms, 59 out of the 150 Psalms are some form of lament. 59 out of the 150. That makes up 39% of the Psalms. And 55% of those are in the first three books of the Psalms. This is a heavy emphasis in the first two-thirds of all the Psalms, a heavy emphasis on this concept or this idea of lament. And these laments include both individual laments as well as designed to lament corporately as a body. That's a large percentage of the Psalms. But not only is lamenting in the book of Psalms, there's actually, we're going through an entire book of the Bible that's dedicated to suffering in the life of the believer, and that's the book of Job. This is where we've been on Sunday mornings for the last little bit. And I don't know about you, like I said, it's been a challenge, it's been a blessing, but it is significant to consider that the oldest book of the Bible is focused solely on this concept of suffering, and these expressions of grief in the midst of suffering for the believer. So we see it in the Psalms. We, we see it in the book of Job. But we also see this in the life of Christ. We see it in Jesus. We see Christ's lament in the Garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion. In Luke 22, verses 41 through 44, it says, And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, And knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down 
to the ground. All right, so here we have Christ in this intense emotional stress. He knows what is about to happen. He knows the suffering, the wrath of God that he is going to bear for the sins of you and me. And it is such an intense moment that the word describes it as sweating blood. Now, can you imagine? This can actually happen. One of the times the medical field describes this happening is during times of intense mental contemplation. So intense that you can actually sweat blood. And in this moment, Christ calls out to his father in the middle of this pain. He's lamenting. We see Christ lamenting in the Garden of Gethsemane, but not only there, we also see expressions of his grief on the cross. On the cross, in that moment when the father turns his back and he pours out his wrath on his son for our sin, Christ actually uses words from a lament psalm, Psalm 22, to express his grief towards God. And we have it recorded in Matthew 27, verse 46. He said, in about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are words straight out of Psalm 22. At the most intense moment of Jesus' life, as he is bearing the punishment for your sin and for mine, he cries out to the Father in lament. So we see lamenting in the Psalms. We, we see a whole book dedicated to this idea of suffering. And we see our Savior lamenting. All this biblical evidence supports the understanding that the Bible spends a lot of its time dealing with this topic. And thus, the Bible provides for us a framework or a language for our laments. A language for our laments. Third, what about the structure? Like, what's the structure? I mean, we're going to use the Psalms, and as we work through these we- weeks, we're going to use the Psalms as the structure to give us a language for our grief, to give us words to speak, expressions in the midst of our grief. We're going to use the Psalms. And in the Psalms, we see a pattern of at least four key elements. Right, so it's structured usually the following way. Usually there's an, expre- there's an address to God. I'm going to put some of these up in a minute. There's an address to God. There's a complaint, a request, and then an expression of trust or praise. And I'm going to break these down in the following way. I take no credit for this breakdown of the lament psalm. This comes by the work of Mark Vrogop. I'm very grateful for his work. This is how we see the wording, the structure of the lament. First, turn to God. That's the first thing we're going to see. Secondarily, bring your complaint. We're going to see, we're going to read complaints that the psalmist bring to God. Questions and complaints that the psalmist brings and voices to God. Then we're going to ask boldly. There's going to be some sort of request, typically. And then lastly, choose to trust. Choose to trust which... um, which we're going to see uh, them an expression of trust and or praise. Now, to help us see these, I don't expect you to write down, to help us see these, we're going to use, like I said, the lament psalms we're going to use. I read Psalm 77 earlier. We're going to use Psalm 77 this morning to help us see. I just want you to visually see the breakdown and structure of this lament psalm uh, from Psalm 77. I'm going to talk through this as we look at it. Okay, the first, we're going to see that the first three verses of the psalm, the first three verses are about turning 
to God. We see the psalmist address God as he comes to him in prayer in the first three verses. And then we see in verses 4 through 9, we see him bring his complaint. He actually identifies in blunt language specific pain or injustice that he's experiencing. And he, and he says that to God. And oftentimes in this area, bring your complaint, we're going to see why or how questions are often included in this complaint in verses 4 through 9. Then we see in verse 10, he, he asks boldly, he, there's this turning point. You're going to see this turning point somewhere in this lament psalm from complaint to choosing to trust. And it's going to be somewhere here where we're going to be asking boldly. And we see that. We're going to see that in verse 10 where we're focusing on the character of God. And then lastly, choosing to trust. And that's verse 11 through 20. 11 through 20 affirms God's worthiness to be trusted and a commitment to praising him. And by the end of the psalm, the psalmist actually has made intentional steps to remind himself of who he knows God to be in the middle of his suffering. That's going to be the last and final step. Now, this is just an overview, right? I wanted you to get a picture of the breakdown and structure of the lament psalm. We're going to break this down and we're going to talk about each one of these components over the next few weeks. So all we're going to do this morning We're going to spend the rest of our time this morning just on that first part, on that first piece turning to God and see how it flows from there. Turning to God. That's the first step in this lament process, in this language of grief that God has given us. Now, I think every parent in here, every parent in here has probably been part of the following scene. When our children are little, there's always that appointment where they get their first shots. Now, I remember this in particular in my oldest son's life. We, we took him to the doctor, sat him down on one of our knees. The nurses came in. They had four shots to give him. Of course, they wanted to be done with as quickly as possible for the, for the plan, right? You got a nurse on each leg, and they're going to do a shot at a time. Boom, boom, right? So four shots as quickly as they can in his, in his legs, as quickly as possible. Now, a- Aiden, of course, in his innocence and his naivety, had no idea what was coming. He's happily babbling away until that moment they give him the first shots. Then, in almost that cartoon fashion, there's a freezing where the, the, the brain processing what has actually happened. What in the world is going on? It's like this delayed reaction. But once he could process it, of course, like every baby, he started screaming. And he kept on screaming. Whatever had just happened, he didn't like it. And he wanted everyone around to know the depth of how he felt. Well, as you can imagine, after that visit, the next time we took him to the doctor, as soon as he realized where we were, he did not want to go in. Now, f- you know, from then it took a while. It was associated. I go to the doctor and I get shots. He wanted to avoid that place as much as possible. And even though the pain, you and like his parents, we know that that pain is good. He didn't want to go in. He just wanted to avoid the pain. I think we, like my son, oftentimes we respond the same way to God and others when we experience pain in this life. Instead of running to God, we often run from God and others in the middle of our pain. We refuse to acknowledge the pain in our lives. We pretend like everything's okay. We don't let other people around us see the pain we're in. We say, I'm okay when everyone asks, but we put up this facade, or we put up this barrier to anyone seeing what is truly going on in our lives. I think we do this for a few reasons. I'll give a couple 
both of these that I'm going to give are based in the fear of man. I think one reason we do this is because we're afraid that if people knew, if people really knew what was going on, they would reject us. We want to be accepted by other people, and surely no one would accept me if they knew what was really going on or the pain that I was feeling. Everyone would look at me differently. Maybe they would separate from me. So in order to, in our minds, protect ourselves, we hide. And in complete transparency for myself, this is the sin bent of my own heart. Out of fear of rejection by others, my sin bent is to hide what is going on, pretend when everything's not okay. In my battles against fear of man, I want people to accept me. I don't want other people to reject me. And I'll tell myself if I really open up, if I, re- if, I if Darren really shows them the struggles and pains that are going on in my life, then that's exactly what's going to happen. They're not going to accept me. They're going to reject me. They're not going to want to be friends with me anymore. They're going to separate from me socially. They're going to withdraw from me. Or even worse, maybe I'll share with them and they'll give me the deer in the headlights look and not know what to say. And it's going to be really awkward. And I don't want to do that. So I'm just not going to say anything at all. Or maybe another reason we withdraw when we experience pain is because we feel shame. We feel ashamed of whatever it is that we're going through, whatever trial, whatever suffering, whatever pain. We feel shame. And so we're afraid of it being exposed. It's really a fear of exposure. Perhaps we've committed some sin we're ashamed of. Or perhaps someone has committed sin against us that we're ashamed of. In either way, there is this shame component, this fear this fear of exposure. We don't want to be close to others because we'll feel vulnerable and exposed and all our shame then is going to be put on display. Now either way, w- either way, whether because of fear of rejection or exposure, when we put up walls and we pretend what we're really doing, right? we're withdrawing from those around us. We're withdrawing from relationships. We can, we can even do that when we're physically around people. I'm, not sh- I'm sure I'm not the only one here who has ever been in a group of people but felt alone while being in a group. But to be honest, where it typically starts is withdrawing and this pulling away. It usually starts in our relationship with God. Not only do we feel like other people will reject us, but we believe God will as well. Not only do we feel shame with others, we also feel shame towards God. And we incorrectly believe that the solution to that sort of feeling is to run away. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, afraid of God seeing them in the shame of their sin as exposed in their nakedness and human efforts to cover it up, we run and we hide from the omnipresent, omniscient God. We run from him. We withdraw from him. What does it look like? We stop reading our Bibles. We stop praying. We stop trying. We, we distance ourselves from God, and then that fruits itself out as we distance ourselves from other people as well. We're angry with God. We're confused. It doesn't seem like this is the way it should be. How could this have happened? We don't feel close to God, so we pull away. And we tell ourselves these lies. God doesn't care. God isn't good. Nobody understands. And once we begin that downward spiral of thinking on ourself and our pain, it's a tailspin. It's hard to come out of it. It's this downward spiral that leads to anger and bitterness and envy and isolation. So the question is, what do we do with these intense emotions? What do we do with the depth of the hurt and pain in the middle of feeling it? So I want to be really clear here. I'm not saying you should not feel those emotions. That's not what I'm saying. That you shouldn't feel anger 
or hurt or discouragement or pain. I'm not, say, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those feelings and emotions that go along with the suffering, that go along with the trials of this life, that go along with living in a sin-fallen world. This journey we are on is not a journey to eradicate those emotions, but rather to allow those emotions to lead us to God and not away from God. What do we do with it then? And that's where we're going to turn to Psalm 77. And we're going to focus on these first three verses. I'm going to read them again. This is Psalm 77, verses 1 through 3. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. It is clear from verse 2, verse 1 and 2, that the psalmist is suffering, right? The psalmist is experiencing some kind of trial. He refers to the day of his trouble. But the question is, what do we see the psalmist doing? What is he doing in the middle of this suffering? We see him, he prays. He turns to God in prayer. And we see that through several phrases. He says, I cry aloud to God. He says, God will hear me. He says, in the day of trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out. These are all indications of postures of prayer of the psalmist toward God in the middle of his suffering. I know this may seem like a minor point, but it, it isn't. It is, it is the important first step. I think that we too often feel like we can't turn to God, that we can't be open and honest about our feelings and our pain, that somehow it isn't okay for us to do that. Scripture, however, paints a very different picture. To God is exactly the direction that we need to turn. So I want to challenge you with these two, two truths. When we give God the silent treatment is the ultimate manifestation of our unbelief. We are expressing unbelief in God when we don't run to him in prayer. Another way to say that, I've heard other people say, this isn't, this isn't new to me, is that when we don't pray, when, when, when we run from God, we are actually uh, practicing practical atheism. We're saying we can do it without God or that we don't need God. And to be clear, that is the antithesis of the gospel. When we don't run to God in the middle of our suffering, our lives are visibly demonstrating the opposite of the gospel. We're saying the gospel isn't true. The gospel isn't enough. Christ isn't enough. But that means the opposite is true then. Turning to God in prayer and lament is one of the deepest expressions of belief in God. Turning to God in prayer and lament is one of the deepest expressions of belief in God. I think the following quote from James Montgomery Boyce is helpful. He's talking about bringing questions to God in prayer. He says, it is better to ask them questions. It is better to ask them the questions than to not ask them because asking them sharpens the issue and pushes us toward the right positive response. Alexander McLaren writes, doubts are better put into plain speech than lying diffused and darkening like poisonous mists in the heart. A thought, be it good or bad, can be dealt with when it is made articulate. 
So we must turn to God in prayer. But the question is, when we do, if that's how we were to respond, if in the middle of our pain and our suffering and our grief, the first thing we should do is turn to God in prayer, what are we supposed to pray? Right? This is part of learning this language. What are we supposed to pray? Sometimes we are hurting so bad we don't even know the words to say. Or maybe we feel like there's certain things we can't say to God. And this is where the rest of the psalm and all the lament psalms inform our prayers. This begins us on our journey of, lear- of learning this language of grief. We're going to work through the rest of the psalm in an overview sort of way. We're going to see how this first step, coming to God in prayer, lays the groundwork for all our prayers, all the rest of the weeks of how we learn this language of grief to God. And we're going to return to each of these steps later. But I'm going to lay out four areas I believe you can turn to God in prayer while suffering. You say, what, what do I pray? What do I pray? Well, first of all, pray your struggles. Pray your struggles. Back to Psalm 77, the second half of verse 2 through verse 4. This is, just to be clear, right? This is the psalmist saying this to God, right? My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. Now notice what the psalmist is expressing in his prayers. He's going to God in prayer. It seems like nothing is happening. He says, my soul refuses to be comforted. He cannot find comfort for his soul even as he's crying out to God. But that doesn't stop him from praying, however. Continue to notice the expressions of the psalmist. He moans. His spirit faints. He feels so much trouble within himself, he doesn't know what to say, feeling like he cannot speak. These are intense expressions of an inward struggle. What is helpful for us is the fact that he goes to God with his struggles. He voices his struggles to God. He doesn't just feel like he can't be comforted, feel like he moans inside, feel like he cannot speak. He actually expresses these things to God. He tells God of the struggles of his heart in the middle of his pain. He expresses that hurt to God. He prays them to God. That's what I'm saying here. We can go to God and we can say these things to God. We see the expression of this in God's word. We can tell God we feel like we don't get any comfort. We can tell God it feels like I don't get any relief. We can tell God that we are tired and we're weary, and we're struggling. It's okay to tell God that you are worn out, that you are exhausted, and that you don't know what to say. It is okay for us to go to God and express those things to him. Pray your struggles. Don't just pray your struggles. Also pray your questions. After, after he expresses his struggles to God, he then begins to meditate. And we see this in verses 5 and 6. He, he says, I consider the days of old, the years long ago. He's meditating. I, I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search 
the psalmist begins to think, and as he thinks and meditates, he thinks about, right, what he's in the middle of, and there's some questions. Some questions naturally rise up in his heart. And we see a series of six questions that the psalmist voices to God in verses 7 through 9. Before we read these questions, I want you to notice that these questions are questions that I believe that we have all struggled with at some point in our lives. Questions that our hearts have wrestled with. Questions that we have wondered, perhaps not felt like we could express. So what does he say? He says, Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? If we break down these questions, here's what we see the psalmist say. He actually, these are, he brings God, will the Lord spurn me forever? Will the Lord never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? No, if we were to put that maybe in our own language, right? If we were to put it in something that we might say, how long do I have to endure this God? Will you keep this in my life forever? God, do you love me? Will you fulfill your promises? Are you faithful? Why does it seem like you are angry with me? Now, you don't have to raise your hand, but if I were to ask the questions, there's anyone in here who has wrestled with these questions while you've been in the middle of suffering, in the middle of pain, in the middle of trial? We all struggle with these questions during different seasons in our life. And the point here is not to answer them. The point at the moment is the psalmist goes to God with these questions. He voices these questions, these complaints, these concerns, these doubts to God. He doesn't hold them back. It is okay to pray to God our questions that flow out of the pain of our suffering. Guess what? God is not scared by your questions. He is not thrown off by your doubts or your struggles or your hurts or your pains. We're going to come back to this this concept next week, but for now just understand that God actually wants us He gives us a language in his word. He wants us to bring our questions to him, not use these questions as an excuse to run from him. So don't just pray your struggles. Pray your questions. Third, pray truth about God. Pray truth about God. After the psalmist prays his struggles and his questions, he reaches this turning point in verse 10. And before we talk about it, we need to talk about this turning point because this turning point is crucial. It's crucial. And we're going to talk, we're going we're to touch on it again next week. But if we turn to God in prayer with our struggles, if we turn to God in prayer with our questions and we leave it there, if we sit in our complaint, then it will turn into despair. 
It will turn into hopelessness. We must go to God with those things, but we can't leave it. We can't let it sit in that moment of expressing our struggles and our complaints and our questions. We can't live there. God wants us to bring them to Him, but there must be a turning point if it's going to truly be lament. Mark Vrogop puts it this way. He says, Lament is a prayer that leads us through personal sorrow and difficult questions into truth that anchors our soul. And that's the key. Praying to God in this way needs to lead us into truth. So the question is, what truth does the psalmist turn to? In verse 10 through 13, he says, Then I said, we have this turning point, I will appeal. Right? He's brought his struggles, he's brought his complaints. He says, I will appeal to this, that the years, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? And if we see this, this is a beautiful moment of what happens in these verses. As the psalmist prays his struggles and his questions to God, it actually turns his heart to God. And it orients his heart to God as he articulates his complaints. And if you notice, he starts remembering things about God. He remembers what God has done in the past. And it leads him to the conclusion that God is holy. That God is blameless. And what's fascinating is he ends this section with another question. Remember, he just expressed his questions to God, his questions of fear, of doubt, of pain. Now he says, what God is great like our God? That's a rhetorical question with an obvious answer of no one. There is no other God. God is great and holy. Like I said, we aren't going to dwell here this morning. We're going to explore this in future weeks. But I wanted you to see how praying through our struggles, praying through our questions are not supposed to be aimless or pointless or ends in themselves. They are meant to drive us to God. Once again, Mark Vrogop says, hurting people are given permission to grieve. They're not aimlessly or selfishly. The biblical language of lament is able to redirect weeping people to what is true, despite the valley they are walking through. Not only should we pray our struggles, Not only should we pray our questions, not only should we pray truth about God, but lastly, we should pray the gospel. We should pray the gospel, and we see this in the rest of the psalm. So in verses 14 through 20, verses 14 through 20, we read, You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. After the psalmist brings his suffering and he struggles his questions to God in prayer, he prays truth about God. This leads him to remember who God is and what he has done. He tunes his heart to sing God's grace. 
And what event in Israel's history does he remember? He doesn't just remember random things that happened in his life. In the middle of this lament, he remembers a specific event in the life of Israel. He actually remembers the single greatest redemptive moment in the exodus from Egypt. He remembers how God redeemed them out of slavery to himself. That is how he can say that God is a redeemer, that God is holy, that God is great. He remembers God as the one who saves. And that is exactly where our hearts should go as well. Except when we go, we can go beyond the exodus of Egypt to we know what that event ultimately pointed to, which is our redemption through Jesus. Our redemption as Christ brought us out of slavery to make us his own. As Christ paid our penalty, paid our penalty on our behalf that we may become children of God so that we may be adopted into his family so that he could save us. When we pray the gospel, it takes the focus off ourselves and puts it rightly upon God. It puts our focus on our Savior, the only one that can redeem us and reconcile us. The only one who can truly save us. And that is the ultimate point this morning. We have to be reminded of this truth that all suffering that we experience is sovereignly intended by a heavenly father that loves his children and knows what is best for them. If you are here this morning and you are saved, if you have repented of your sins and placed your trust in Jesus Christ, that means you are a child of God. And God is a perfect heavenly father who always knows what is best and brings whatever into the lives of his children that will bring himself the most glory and cause us to grow and change to be like Jesus. The problem is that when we're going through this kind of pain, it doesn't feel very loving. It just doesn't. It's, it's painful. It hurts. We don't understand why. We know we're not perfect, but we can't seem to match what we're going through with our life. And in that moment, when you and I are tempted to interpret, when we are tempted to interpret the painful circumstances of our life to mean that God doesn't love us, and he doesn't care, that is the very moment when you and I need to step toward God by faith. That is the moment that we need to make the choice by the power of the Spirit to not withdraw and isolate from God and others, but to press in and to press forward. That is what God wants you and I to see and be challenged with this morning. Turn to God in prayer in the middle of your suffering. Turn to him. And when you do, and you don't know what to say, turn to the lament psalms. Pray your struggles. Pray your questions. Pray truth about God and pray the gospel. And as we learn this godly language of grief, as we begin to speak it in our lives, we will find that our hearts are actually drawn to our Savior. You know what's amazing? What's amazing to me about learning this language is it doesn't actually change the situation at all. It doesn't change the situation. It doesn't, it doesn't change what you're going through. When you're done praying these prayers, you're still in your suffering. Yet, yet you will find that your heart is drawn towards God in ways that you couldn't have thought possible, in ways you couldn't have imagined. You'll find your heart 
oddly encouraged and strengthened and comforted as you voice your pain, as you pray your struggles, as you ask God and express your doubts and your fears to Him, and as you intentionally choose to turn and to focus on Him, you will find yourself going deeper into Him, which is is exactly where God wants us to be. Let's pray.